You're listening to a North Valley Community Church podcast. For more information and resources, visit us online at northvalleychurch.org. Well, on Thursday, I was out with my wife, and we were doing a bunch of errands, and it was, uh, actually it was Friday, but it was like throwback Thursday music playlist time, but on a Friday. And I had Pandora open, and I was listening to it, and we had to go do a bunch of errands, and uh, we had to go get admissions test over there on Deer Valley, you know, that little spot, pretty cool spot, works out pretty quick, move in, go out, and you're good to go. We're doing all our errands and stuff on Friday, and I just don't like doing errands, and so I said, sweetie, let's just rock it out with some old school playlist on Pandora. So I put in like Eye of the Tiger, you know. So we're into Eye of the Tiger for a moment, and the next thing you know, Def Leppard comes up, you know? And I just went back to junior high when I'm at the pool, and I'm like, turn it up, lifeguard, you know? And it's like, pour your sugar on me, just one-arm drummer, you know? And then, and so we're listening to Def Leppard, and uh, this song comes up, the lyrics go something like this, pour your sugar on me in the name of Okay, let's do that again. Pour your sugar on me in the name of love. There you go. You got it. You know what my wife says? She goes, pour your sugar on me in the neighborhood. And I was like, what did you just say? And she says, I said what it said. It said, pour your love, pour your sugar on me in the neighborhood. I was like, that is not what that song says. Sometimes you got to take a double look at what you listen to, what you watch, or what you hear. Um, the other day I was walking from the, uh, my, my little community center, walking home, and I needed, and I was like, man, it feels great outside. It feels so good. This is how you know you've been in Phoenix too long when you say stuff like this. It feels great outside. Man, the air feels brisk. It's great. And I was like, let me just check the temperature. So I pull out my phone, and I look at the temperature, and it says, 99 degrees. Sometimes you ought to take a double look at what you're looking at or listening to and see what it really, really says or what it really means. This morning, we need to do a double look at what holiness looks like. Depending on your Christian experience or your background, your lack of understanding potentially about church, Christianity, holiness could be something different for you that you don't understand. Um, This morning, we're going to look at 1 Peter chapter uh, 1, verses 13 through 16. And I want to I do less this morning rather than more. I want to go more in depth on this passage and kind of unpack ideas. I want to help you understand what holiness is not. I want to help you understand what holiness is. And then we're going to walk away with some just practical truths. So, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, and this is where we're going to be this morning, and uh, it starts in verse 13, therefore, let me stop right there, anytime there's a therefore in the Bible, you need to know what it's there for, you got to understand what it's there for, this is the game plan that I was talking about, how to overcome and live a life of holiness, uh, overcoming the tests, the trials, the temptations, and the troubles that you're going to face. So he says, therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace 
that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Peter's quoting from Leviticus chapter 11, verse 45. He's saying, be holy because he's holy. That we're to live a holy lifestyle. See, I grew up in a great Christian home, had a great mom and dad, and like the prodigal son story, had a great family. But I didn't fit into the church. I didn't fit into Christianity. And to me, I was so different, so detached, so disconnected, and ran a life of rebellion that I felt like the Christians were a bunch of holy rollers and Bible thumpers. You, you, you kind of felt like that before, where you're like, that's them, this is me. Well, I want to help you understand holy. In the word in Hebrew, the word holy is kadosh. Let's say that together. Kadosh. Let's try that again. Kadosh. If you spit on your neighbor beside you by saying that, you should wipe it off their head, okay? Um, in Greek, the word is hagios, and it means, and both of them mean um, separated or cut away from. The reality is, is that when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we're positionally made holy, but practically, we've got to live a life of holiness, and we progressively grow in holiness, becoming more and more conformed to the image and the pattern of who Jesus is. And that requires us to be separated from our old way of living. When I first became a Christian, the very first thing I had to do, not because I had to do it to earn God's love, but I had to do it if I was going to grow, was to separate myself from my former friends and my lifestyle. I remember I came to faith in Christ in 1997. I was on the, on the, on the uh, wonderful youth retreat, placed my faith in Jesus Christ, not because somebody gave me some eloquent message, but because I looked up at the sky, I saw the heavens, I saw the stars, I was so overwhelmed that there was a creator and I was not him and I was not king that I realized I needed to submit my life to Jesus Christ and let him have rule and reign over everything. Got on the bus, went home. First thing I felt like the Holy Spirit put on my heart was, Ryan, you need to break up with your girlfriend. You need to leave the life of partying and debauchery and sin and shame that you're associated with. You need to ask for forgiveness from all your old friends. And then you need to love on them. But don't live with them. So I had to separate myself. When it comes to holiness, here's what it means. Holy people are, they're just set apart. Do you know that you're set apart? When you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you're just set apart. You've been kind of positioned and put in a new category that you are made new, a new lifestyle. You're set apart as a Christian. Be, holy people are set apart. They're different and they belong to God. A couple different passages I put there in your program for you to look up later today or maybe throughout this week or if you're in a neighborhood group you can dive into these but Leviticus 20 26 says this idea of being set apart listen it says you shall be holy to me for I the Lord am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine the idea is that God has always separated believers, not just for the sake of separation, but so that they could grow in holiness, distinct and different, set apart. They belong to God. They are his. And they were to be, according to Exodus 19, 16, called to be a holy nation, the nation of Israel. Believers are always to share and shine 
God's righteousness throughout all of the earth. We're designed to reflect who God is and we're to be different. Hebrews 12, 14 says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness. The problem is, is that we oftentimes have a distorted view of holiness and there are a bunch of fake forms of holiness. So I wanna help you learn what not to do or what not to be fooled by. The command by Peter is be holy and he's echoing Old Testament uh, commands from the Lord to the nation of Israel and it's a command for every believer, be holy as the Lord is holy. The first uh, kind of fake holiness that we see in um, Jesus's day, but also in our day as well, is what I'm going to call modern day Pharisees. These are self-made legalists. The Apostle Paul in Colossians warns against this, that adding a bunch of extra rules and extra regulations to the Christian faith is damaging, discouraging, and damning. It's not life. There's no life there. How many of you have ever been a part of churches where you're like, you read the Bible, but then the preacher says a bunch of things, or the, the church as a whole added a bunch of stuff to it, and you're like, where do they get this? This is, this is legalist, legalism. Matthew 19, 9, chapter 9, if you've got a Bible, you can open it there. I want to read to you about Jesus hanging with the wrong kind of crowd, and he kind of blows the roof off the thinking of Pharisees. And the, the, the Pharisees, what are Pharisees? As you turn near Matthew chapter 9, verse 10 through 13, let me tell you a little bit about Pharisees. These guys were devout biblical people. They were very measured, very smart, but they oftentimes went beyond Scripture. They, they kind of, they knew the Bible, but they went way beyond the, the, the Scriptures. Their sins were not like my old sins of the past and, you know, hanging around with the, the rowdy crowd and doing all the wrong things. Their sins were not overt, like committing adultery, getting drunk, stealing. Their sins were prideful, arrogant. They were covert, internal. And you find this in many modern-day Pharisees. Their sins are they're quick to judge people, they're low on grace, and they're high on truth. They say things like, let me just tell you like it is, or the truth is this. And they're adding extra rules and regulations to a lot of different things. They're always worried about uh, contamination or mingling with the wrong crowd. And in Jesus' day, Jesus didn't make sense to many of the Pharisees. Matthew 9, 10 through 13, Jesus hangs with the wrong crowd. Listen to what it, uh, the gospel writer records. And as Jesus reclined at the table, he's hanging out, he's eating food, in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Now, tax collectors were like cheats and fraudsters of the day. They had an alliance with Rome, and they worked throughout uh, the Jerusalem and Judea area, and they kind of would say, here's your tax bill, but they'd add a little extra money onto it so that they could get a little more money in their pockets, and so people felt robbed and cheated. And Jesus is hanging out with these guys. He's hanging out with the tax collectors. He's hanging out with the sinners, and it says... And verse 11, and when the Pharisees saw this, they said to the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when, when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I came, to call, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. 
You know, Jesus' mission was to come to save sinners. That's why he came. That's why we have the cross. He came to bring to himself the unclean, the ungodly, the unwanted, the unworthy. Jesus came for those. He came for the unholy, to make them holy by believing in him and progressively growing in holiness. So what is... Um, what, is, what does legalism look like in today's culture? I'm going to pick on, I normally don't do this, but I'm going to pick on some modern day forms of legalism. The old school of legalism would be something like this, like don't drink alcohol, don't go to the movies, don't dance, um, you know, don't do that. But now it's different. Like now you're a cool hipster Christian guy if you do microbrew in your garage and you share with people about Jesus at the pub. I mean, one of my first preaching opportunities um, to an adult congregation was in a bar, downtown Little Rock, and I preached. And that's cool now. Back then, a long time ago, maybe not so cool. So what are the new forms of legalism? I'm going to give you five blends of Christian legalism today. This is not in your notes, but I just want you to understand that there's a little bit of legalism in all of us. And all of these things aren't necessarily wrong, but they're wrong when they, you make extra rules and regulations and force them on other people and act like they're not holy enough, good enough, or they're not in the Christian club or genuine disciples unless they live and act like you. I'm going to call them the diehard Christians. These are people that they work so hard. They want to do something. They, wanna, they say they love Bible verses like, carry your cross, die to self. They're diehards. They're going to serve in the church at the neglect of themselves. They're going to pour their lives out and somehow secretly in the back of their mind, maybe they're trying to atone for sins of the past or maybe they're trying to die for the church. And the message to these folks is, hey, listen, you don't have to die for the church. Jesus did. Jesus died for the church, so you don't have to. You don't have to atone for your sins because Jesus did. Jesus did. And diehard Christians can look down on others if everybody's not like them. It's not wrong to serve in the church. It's not wrong to sacrifice. It's not wrong to, wrong to die for self. But to mandate all the behaviors and these uh, uh, lifestyle choices that these diehard Christians make and then push it on others and act like they're ungodly or unrighteous, if they do these things, there's a problem. Then there's the missional Christians. These are the folks that love social justice. And I'm, I love social justice. God loves social justice. Missional Christians are, are like this, though. Do you serve in a soup kitchen? Do you serve the poor? If you don't, are you not godly enough? I mean, they, they might not say that, but sometimes that can come across that way. Missional Christians, kind of the litmus test is whether you're, you're doing social justice. Then there's the organic Christians. Organic Christians are those that love to gather in house churches, kind of have an anti-establishment uh, mentality. And they're kind of, they love the organic side of Christian faith. That's nothing wrong with that. But when then you push it on everybody else and every church that you see have, with a building, a budget, and a staff are evil or wrong or not as godly, then you got a problem. Then there's the gospel-centered Christians. And I've erred on this side. Where you love big theological words, you value education a lot, and if you don't tie everything into the gospel, then maybe it's not really you fit in the club. And then you have the crazy Christians, the crazy Jesus-loving Christians. And they just, they're passionate, they're going to sell out, they're lifting their hands. There's nothing wrong with lifting your hands. But then when you turn around and you look at somebody else and judge them because they're not, they're not as holy, because they didn't lift their hands, or they didn't cry when the worship song came on. So we can put, here's my, 
my point. I don't have this in the notes, but I want to clarify. When we make our preferences for the Christian faith a policy of who's in and who's not in, we've crossed the line. When we're making our preferences a policy of who's in and who's not in, we've crossed the line, and there's just a little Pharisee in you and me. There's nothing wrong with all those things, but it's important not to camp out there. Let me make one other illustration on this, on on Pharisees, because Pharisees is the biggest group that has a fake form of holiness. Um, take Colossi- or, uh, Corinth- uh, 1 Corinthians 3.16, uh, the passage says, do you not know, the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Corinth, and he says, hey, church in Corinth that struggles with crazy sexual immorality, a lot of bad things going on, he says, hey, do you not know that you yourselves are God's temple and that the Holy Spirit dwells within you? That's what he says to them. He's saying that because he's telling them that they are God's temple and they need to live a life of holiness because what many of the Corinthians were doing was there was incest going on. There was guys and gals that were just getting saved out of pagan practices. They'd visit the prostitutes in the pagan temples and then acting like everything is fine. And what Paul is saying, like, your body is a holy temple. Like, you've got to keep it clean. So what do we do with that verse in today's Christian world, today's Christian living? I've heard people say stuff like this. Hey, that kid shouldn't have tattoos. And why? Because his body is a holy temple. Okay, yes, his body is a holy temple, but does tattoos really cross the line? That kid shouldn't have an ear pierced or an eyebrow pierced. God forbid a nose piercing or a tongue piercing. That girl can't have plastic surgery. That guy can't do this. That, that person shouldn't drink alcohol. That person shouldn't do this. That person shouldn't do that. Why? Well, because their body's the holy temple. Let me clarify something. When we make biblical implications, commands for other people, we've crossed the line. We take a passage like your body's a holy temple, and then you put all these extra rules on it all these extra regulations on it and then somehow look down on other people because they're doing that. And there's nothing wrong if they don't want to get a piercing or don't want to get a tattoo or want to abstain from alcohol or want to abstain. But when, they, when we put that stuff on people and act like there's this first class, second class Christian, we take implications of scripture and make them commands, we've fallen into legalism. The second form of holiness is modern day zealots. These are angry activists. They believed in uh, the, the early zealots. They believed in the overthrow of the Roman Empire. They would not tolerate pagan idols and practices in the land. They believed that God would bring about the kingdom with their help. Maybe as the early Christians that were the zealots and angry activists, when they would quote the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. They believed that it absolutely depended on them. And they were angry against the empire of Rome because it was corrupt. They were angry at a lot of the uh, uh, lukewarmness of some of the Christianity that was going on. But these modern day zealots, they need to learn something. I've been labeled a zealot before, overly zealous, and run over people and said bad things and not literally run over people. Oh, Pastor Ryan ran over somebody. No, just said things that were rude or rough around the edges. 
And so the, the but these folks that I mean, I mean part of me running away from the church was seeing these angry zealots. Modern day zealots would be those that protest outside the abortion clinics. You ever seen them before? They have mean signs they hold up and they shame people into trying to make decisions. They love to use guilt, fear, and intimidation to try to get their point across. They hold up mean signs at gay parades. They protest even at funerals. They love Bible verses about spiritual warfare and they love the idea of God's wrath and they love the idea of wiping out sin in the world. And the problem is, the problem is, is that God doesn't call us to wipe people out. He calls us to win them over. Angry zealots or angry activists need to hear verses like this, John 3, 16. Let's just say it out loud together. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Did you hear that? It says God loves the world. In fact, in John 17, 18, Jesus prays. He says, as you, as you have sent me, Father, so I'm sending them, His disciples, into the world. So, as a Christian, we need to be in the world, but not of the world. We need to live in the world, and we have a purpose in the world. Angry activists oftentimes need to hear verses like this in 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 25. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. And you don't have to debate everybody. If you're passionate about the holiness of God, praise the Lord, that's great. But you don't beat people up in the process. The Lord's servant, according to uh, 2 Timothy 2.24, the Lord's, Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind. kind. Kindness is not necessarily cool in today's culture. But kindness is cool as a Christian. And when somebody wrongs you, you respond with kindness. He says, but be kind to everyone, able to teach patiently, enduring evil, correcting opponents with gentleness. In today's culture, when we have the angry zealots, even within the church, instead of being gentle, they're pulling out grenades and throwing them at the culture. That's a false form of holiness. Number three, another false form of holiness or fake holiness is the modern-day monks, the Essenes, the reflective loners. The Essenes were people in Jesus' day, they believed that if they withdrew from the corrupt temple system and, they, and, and uh, withdrew from the empire of Rome. They would live holy lives, totally separate, uh, pulled back from the empire of Rome. And they believed that God would bring about their kingdom without any of their involvement. So the exact opposite of the zealot activists. They, if I stay in my holy little home, my little cloister here, the world just fall into pot. God's going to do whatever he wants to do. And I'm going to stay here and meditate on scripture and think about good and holy things, all that. As a missionary, I went over to um, Madrid, Spain, and then went to Barcelona and up into the mountains of Barcelona, Mount Serrat, and spent three or four days with these monks. It was really cool. They spoke Spanish. I didn't speak a whole lot of Spanish. I had about 25% of what they were saying. And I would just say, all right, amen, yep, hola, you know, those kind of things. That's about it. But these guys lived a life separated. Modern day monks, they, they go oftentimes from conference to conference or as a kid, maybe you went to a, a church camp, you get your Jesus high on. Many modern day monks prefer to just do Christianity and church online. Just stay home. 
Well, stay home because I, you know why? Well, guess what? You can get 10 times better messages than you get here uh, with celebrity pastors online. You can worship online. You can, you can uh, listen to music. And you can hear preaching. You can give online. It's all good. That's great. Um, but you can't have fellowship with other believers online. Not to the same extent in the real life. Modern day monks, uh, they confuse sometimes solitude and isolation. Solitude is where you get away for a period of time so that you can connect with Jesus and then you can go back into the world with his followers. Isolation is when you go for a long time and you detach from the community, the church, friends, and family. Modern day monks, sometimes they, there's nothing wrong with homeschool, but sometimes families say, well, we have to pull our kids out of the corrupt systems of the world and homeschool our kids so that they don't get contaminated or they don't get whatever. There's nothing wrong with staying at home, listening to an online sermon. There's nothing wrong with being in homeschool, uh, being separated from the world. But remember these Bible verses. 1 Peter 2.12, he says this, keep your conduct honorable so that when they speak against you, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. Did you know that your good deeds are really important to people? That your presence is very powerful among other believers and unbelievers? Jesus said it like this in Matthew 5, 14 through 16. Hey, did you know, he's talking to believers, you're the light of the world. You're to shine in the darkness. Let your light shine so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Martin Luther, the church reformer, said it like this. Hey, church, God doesn't need your good deeds, but your neighbors do. Your neighbors need to see how you live. And if you huddle down in your home or you huddle down and you refuse to integrate into the world, then you're missing out on sharing and showing the love of Jesus Christ to the world around you. I like the stickers, not of this world. You've seen them before on the back of cars, N-O-T-W, not of this world. I mean, they're cool. Like, you're not of this world as a Christian. But listen to me, you are in the world. And you need to shine and share the love of Jesus Christ with your presence. Mark 16, 15, Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. So we've got to go in. Fourth category for fake holiness, and all of these, by the way, I have fallen into all of these categories at some level or another over time, and it's not a lifestyle I want to pursue, and I bet that you have too. This one's a tough one, modern day Samson's. This is where we need to understand giftedness does not mean godliness. There's plenty of gifted people in the world, but it doesn't mean they're necessarily godly. It can be a fake form of holiness. In Judges 15 and 16, Samson is said to have held a high role of leadership for 20 years in, in the nation of Israel. He was a warrior judge. But Samson had a weak part to him. He had a lust for ladies that he continued to get into conflict with the Philistine ladies. And he even visited a prostitute. And he got into a relationship with a gal by the name of Delilah, and that became his downfall. But here's the reality of it that's crazy, and it's really cool. God still uses people like Samson or King David or others to accomplish his plan and his purpose. But when you see gifted, giftedness in your own life or in other people's life, it doesn't necessarily mean godliness. 
Modern day Samson's are those that might be powerful or gifted people. They have, might have a gift of giving or a gift of serving or a gift of administration. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they're growing in godliness. Some have amazing gifts of leadership or serving. And the reality is, is that a gift is a gift. God gives out his gifts sometimes unevenly. I mean, what does real holiness look like? Let's talk about that. So we looked at what holiness doesn't look like. Let's talk about what real holiness looks like. How to really live out your faith. Number one, it starts with being born again. That's where holiness starts. It's conversion. It's being born again. As I've taught last week, in the very beginning of 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Peter addresses this. The pathway to holiness starts with being born again. He says that God has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Peter emphasizes this again and again. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, he says, you have been born again through the living and abiding word of God. In John 3, 3, we, we learned last week that Jesus went so far to say, unless somebody is born again, they cannot see the kingdom of God. Holiness starts with being born again. You know, there's probably no better uh, picture of a new life in Jesus Christ once somebody's been born again to testify publicly about their faith and their new identity in Jesus than that of baptism. This last Sunday, we baptized a number of, of families and individuals in first and second service. It's one of my favorite Sundays of the year is when we get to do these things. I want to tell you a little bit of the story of Ryan. Uh, t Ryan um, is a great guy. Um, Ryan and Julie White right here. Ryan's been in my neighborhood group for some time now. And uh, Ryan wrote this about his baptism. He said, baptism to me was a strong commitment to my faith going public. It was a commitment to my family and the boys that our family would serve the Lord. You know, Ryan went forward and he wears the shirt, I am new. And with his wife, she is, does too. And what that symbolizes is that when somebody is born again, when, they're, when, they're, when they've received Jesus Christ as the Lord, that the old is washed away and then the new has come. And it's just an outward expression of the new life that God offers. It's an incredible experience. If you haven't done that, I encourage you to do that. But then what Ryan did was so cool. He said, Pastor Ryan... There's a lot of Ryans in my neighborhood group. And he said, Pastor Ryan, I want to baptize my wife, and then I'd like to baptize my kids. Parker and Preston made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. And then uh, we had the privilege, I watched Ryan and Julie together baptize their kids into a new life in Jesus Christ. Isn't that cool? Yeah, let's celebrate that. The starting point of holiness is being born again. And one of the greatest expressions of that is, is seeing a, a family being baptized. Jesus said this about being born again. He talks about us being born into a new family. In John 1.12, he says, To all who received him, who all who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Let me ask you a question. Have you been born again? Now that phrase for you, maybe it comes across as weird because you heard somebody say it in the past. But being a born again means that you're born into a new family. And the simplicity of it is, is if we just receive Jesus Christ as our Lord, that, that we can become children of God. That God is our Father. 
our new life, our new identity, and our pathway to holiness starts with being born again. If you haven't been born again, my encouragement to you is to place your faith in Jesus Christ before you leave today. I'll pray with you at the end of the service. Uh, and then maybe for those of you that say, yeah, I have been born again. Maybe for you, your next step is going public with your faith and letting the people know in, in, in the community is that, hey, you are new. Second, second uh, example of real holiness is living a life of, with faith uh, as a child. First Peter emphasizes this. Um, Peter gives us an example of what holiness does look like. This is very, very important. As a, as a dad to my own kids, um, when we're going through a hard time, sometimes my son or my daughters will come up to me and they say, Dad, are we going to be okay? I put my hand on their shoulder and I say, we're going to be okay. Dad, I need this. I'm going through this challenge. I put my hand on them. I reassure them. We're going to make it. Dad, how are we going to do this or how are we going to do that? I just tell them and they believe me because I try to be a good father. I'm not a great, I'm not perfect, not at all. But when there's a loving father and a kid comes to the parent or the dad and asks the question, how are they going to make it or what, they, they come up with phrases of that express dependence and trust. Did you know that the Bible calls us never to, to be like, Jesus never calls us to be like an adult. He calls us to be like a child. The Apostle Peter would spend a lot of time with Jesus, and he says the same thing. 1 Peter 1, 14 through 15. He says, as obedient children, do not conform to the passions of your former ignorance. As God has called you, is holy, so also be holy in all your conduct. Jesus said this in Matthew 18, 3 through 4. He says, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Isn't that funny? That we need to turn and become like children to enter into the kingdom of heaven. What does that look like? I think it looks like this for me, is that I place my trust and dependence on the Lord every single day. Maybe my prayer life's more like this. Hey, Dad, today I'm going to work with you. Can't wait. Hey, Dad, I don't understand what we're going through, but I'm gonna trust that what you say in your words good enough and I'm going to depend on you today. Hey, Dad, there's a lot of drama going on in the family, but I'm going to trust that you're a good dad, and I'm going to walk with you through this because I believe in you and I love you, Dad. Sometimes when it comes to our faith, we try to act so big and so mature, but when you really get in the power and the presence of God, sometimes you feel so small, and that's not a bad thing. Bible even says stuff like this, humble yourself before the Lord, and he will lift you up. The Apostle Peter even says some of the same kinds of things is that God gives grace to the humble and continually and ongoingly we're going to see the importance of living in dependence and trust in the Lord. Living with the faith of a child is a crucial step to living in real holiness. So here's a question for you. Just ask this question. When you're struggling, when you're feeling ungodly, when you're feeling unwanted or unworthy, just ask this question Say, am I trusting God like a child trusts a good father? If you're not trusting God, then probably what you're doing is taking your matters into your own hands. You're probably fighting the paradigm and the picture that the Apostle Peter said about holiness that you're to live as children and you're trying to do everything in your own strength. A simple question like, Lord, am I acting 
like a, am I acting like a child or am I acting like an adult trying to do everything on my own? Number three, I'd encourage you a real, a real pathway to holiness would be is just keeping an eternal perspective. In 1 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, Peter calls us, that tells us that we're to be elect exiles. He says we are elect exiles. He reminds us that our, this world is not our home. Uh, that while we are in the world, we're not to be of the world. That we are elect, that means that we are chosen for a position. We have a calling on our lives. We're to live holy, that means separate, different, distinct. We belong to God. But he calls us elect exiles. Um, in Philippians, the Apostle Paul says that our citizenship is in heaven. The idea is that our citizenship of our heaven is really our home, that we really aren't supposed to fit in here, that our life is not perfect here. This isn't as good as it gets. For the Christian, listen to me, for the Christian, this is as worse as it gets. This is as bad as it gets. For the Christian, this is as bad as it'll ever be, the world that we live in. The greatness, the goodness is in the life to come. Our citizenship is not here in the United States of America. Our citizenship is in heaven. That's a powerful reality. Whatever you're going through, keep it in perspective that we need to keep an eternal perspective. In closing out in 1 Peter, in chapter 1, verses 17 through 25, uh, Peter again reminds us again that we're uh, exiles. And then he goes on to talk about keeping an eternal perspective because our lives are temporal and that we're to hold on to God's eternal word through this life. One of the questions that you could ask is maybe just as, will this really matter in eternity? Whatever you're doing, whatever you're going through, just ask that question, will this really matter in eternity? Keep an eternal perspective. Lastly, I want to encourage you in your pursuit of growing in holiness is just to rely on God's grace. That's the best part. Because you can't do it alone. God's more committed to you than you are to Him. That's good. He's God. An endless reservoir of God's grace and His goodness is on your life. Whatever your addiction is, whatever your hang-up is, whatever your hurt, whatever you're dealing with, like, here's what He wants you to do. Act like a child. Yes, you have permission to act like a child and rely on the good graces of Dad. First Peter says this, um, I love this, I had to reevaluate even how to communicate this message series, but in First Peter, um, Peter refers to the overcoming tests, trials, temptations, and troubles, and he starts his letter to the dispersed Christians all throughout the Roman Empire, and he ends his letter talking about grace that you and I need to rely on it if we're going to overcome whatever we're going through. First Peter 1-2, it's the intro. He writes, grace and peace be multiplied to you. That's Peter's heart. That's his desire, that grace within us would multiply within us, that it would well up, it would grow in our life. And we do that through an abiding relationship with Jesus Christ. God's grace begins to grow in us more and more through that. Somebody asked me, what is grace? Grace is... God's riches at Christ's expense. It's Jesus Christ. He is the ex perfect example. It's God's riches at Christ's expense. 
1 Peter 1.10, the prophets prophesied about this grace. Peter uses that language. That the prophets were talking about Jesus as the Messiah and that He was the grace. That He is the grace. 1 Peter 1.13, Peter again pounds this important point to rely on God's grace. He says, 1 Peter 1.13, where we started this morning, he says, set your hope fully on the grace. So you and I set your mind fully on the grace that God's riches at Christ's expense. I have a life with God. I have a peace with God through Jesus Christ. God's good to me. God loves me. God's life is, I have a secure life. This is as bad as it's going to get. It's going to get better in the world to come. And then in 1 Peter 3, 7, Peter refers and describes husbands and wives in the relationship, and he calls it the grace of life. Grace is in everything. Peter's saying you got to depend, whatever, if you're going through a marriage conflict, going through hardship in your home, you're not seeing eye to eye, there's this grace at work. The grace of life. And then there's 1 Peter 4.10. He says, as God gives us gifts, we're to steward. We're to be stewards of God's grace. So as we receive God's grace and we rely on God's grace, then we're to extend that grace through our service and our acts. And you can't do that if you're being a, a, a reflective loner all by yourself. You've got gifts. You, you're to steward those gifts. You're to use those gifts. Then continue on 1 Peter 5.5. 5. Put all these in your notes. God gives grace to the humble. Peter says that. That God gives grace. God's a giver of grace. You have a shortage of grace in your life, God gives grace. How do you get that? You humble yourself before the Lord. You say, Lord, I'm sorry for doing A, B, and C. I need your grace today to make it through what I'm going through. You get more grace. The Bible says where sin increases, grace abounds. It's just a simple confession to the Lord. Lord, I need your grace and where there's humility, there's hope. 1 Peter 5.12 closes it out seven times, mentions the key theme of grace, kind of the golden thread for the secret of overcoming. He says Peter refers to all of his teaching and he calls it the true grace. And then he says this, stand firm in it. Stand firm in it. I want to encourage you, maybe take your next step. Um, there's a reality of today as we're kind of going through the rest of the service is, is that you need, to, you need to take a next step to do something. You need to receive something, but then you need to do something. I want you to receive in a minute. I want you to receive God's grace through communion. And remember that. God, Christ, God's riches at Christ's expense. Receive that grace. Feel that grace. Know God's secure love for you. And then secondly, I want to encourage you to take a step to grow in holiness and we offer here at uh, North Valley a class called 201, and it's about growing in Christian maturity. And we actually teach four habits of holiness, just growing in holiness. And I'm going to be teaching that later uh, after this service in the kids' building. I'd love to invite anybody that hasn't been a part of that to be a part of that. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for today. I thank you that we are holy positionally because... You died on the cross and atoned for our sins so we didn't have to. I thank you, God, that even in the tension of it all, that you call us to um, grow in holiness more and more. And so today I pray for those that, Lord, are discouraged, maybe feel defeated. I just pray for an infusion of God's grace upon their life that would come through the Holy Spirit, the preaching of your word, which is 
your truths saturated in grace to revive and restore right now in the name of Jesus. Lord, for those that say, um, I don't even know if I'm born again, I do pray right now that they would, in a bold step of faith, just simply receive you as their Lord. They'd humble themselves before you and just say simply and quietly right there from their chair, Lord, I admit, I've gone so far away. I acknowledge my sin. It's weighing me down. I need you to take it from me. I believe in the name of Jesus and I confess Him today as my Lord. Make me new by the power of Christ. And Lord, today for all of us, I just pray that we would grow in grace, rely on grace. Lord, live with a faith like a child, waking up as if it's Christmas and we're excited to receive whatever, what all that you've provided. Revive, renew, restore in the name of Jesus, we pray. Thank you. Amen. Amen. Well, hey, we're moving into a time where um, we're going to sing a little bit. We're going to have some more communion. We're going to have some more communion. We're going to have communion. And uh, Joshua wrote a song, and I'm so glad he did. He wrote a song actually about this verse. And I want to encourage you to just reflect on the lyrics and to see that God does call us to live a life of holiness. And in that is great happiness and joy. So I'm going to turn it over to Joshua and we're going to have communion and be able to sing together. Thank you for listening. To become a supporter of North Valley Community Church, give online today at northvalleychurch.org.